The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And in our study today, we return to the seventh commandment in which God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is the third message on this timely subject, and it's time that's well spent because this is a sin that is so widespread. It covers a multitude, variety of, of offenses, and without doubt it ranks near the top of the list of the commandments that we break so often in this day. However, if I were to tell you that we need more preaching on this today than they needed back in the Bible times, uh, I wouldn't tell you the truth, because this sin has always been at the top of the list of frequent abuse, as seen by its continual warnings in the Scripture. Sexual sins are, were prevalent in ancient societies and were even a part of their religion. In the immediate context of Exodus chapter 20, the commands from Sinai were given to govern Israel when they were in Canaan. Their blessings in the land were dependent upon strict obedience to these commands. And a particular note was the constant temptations that were put in front of them because of the Canaanites' gross immorality. Now, Satan always sets traps for God's people, and one of his most effective snares is sexual immorality. On the way to Canaan, there was a king by the name of Balak. He was a Moabite king, and he hired the prophet Balaam to put a curse on Israel because he feared that they would be a threat to him if they were allowed to settle in Canaan and to become his, his uh, neighbors. The Moabites worshipped the same god Chemosh as the Ammonites that lived in Jericho. And in this story, uh, Balaam, uh, the prophet that was hired, resisted cursing Israel directly, because, but because of his greed to receive the reward from Balak, he devised a way that he could accomplish the same harm without cursing Israel. Uh, his solution was to, is called actually the, the matter of Baal Peor. Uh, Balaam counseled Balak to tempt Israel with Moabite women. This all took place at the hill of Peor, which was a place of Baal worship, and because they disobeyed God and sinned, because Israel sinned, God caused thousands in Israel to die. And then the same temptations faced them as they went into Canaan, uh, because the Canaanites were perhaps the most morally reprehensible people to ever inhabit the earth. On our visit to Israel a few years ago, we saw many archaeological excavations of ancient Canaanite cities that were filled with relics of that very sexually charged religion that they worshipped, uh, they practiced. Sexual immorality was such a snare and such a heinous crime that God said to Israel, when you go in to possess the land, I want you to kill all of the people. Kill all, all of them. In some of the cities, they killed every living person they left none of them, including women and children. And so from the beginning of Israel's history, this was a crime that so often caused them to fail. Their lust led to the worship of false gods. And even Solomon, who prayed so eloquently at the beginning of his reign for the, the grace to guide God's people, the wisdom to, to lead them, fell 
victim to his lust. And our congregational reading in the Proverbs shows how much that the sin of adultery colors Solomon's advice. So no, I would be wrong if I said that this is only a modern problem. Old and New Testaments have frequent warnings against this sin that's common to all humans. The same issue confronted the Apostle Paul. He dealt with with this very same thing with Gentile converts. One of his biggest problems was trying to get the Gentiles away from the temple prostitutes and all manners of sexual perversion. And so teaching forms a lar- teaching on adultery forms a large part of Paul's instruction in the New Testament. Now, in America, the, the Puritans of the 17th century dealt with this 400 years ago. In the late 19th century, during the Victorian era, sexual immorality was kept out of the public view, but don't think that it wasn't a public a private problem, because this sin has always been with us. And, and it comes to our attention in a more public way today, because what we're doing is reverting back to the sins of the Canaanites and the Romans. Our culture is becoming very much like that. Now, last week I explained that adultery in Exodus 20.14 covers a broad range of sexual sins. It covers all sexual sins, not only those that are committed by married people. And this is apparent because there, uh, there are other texts in which adultery in marriage is not mentioned, but other sexual activity is prohibited. And that shows us that adultery in the 14th verse of Exodus 20 must cover those sins as well because they're not mentioned underneath the other commandments. For example, homosexuality and bestiality are forbidden in Leviticus 18 and in other texts in both New and uh, Old and New Testaments. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are often used to characterize the worst sins that any society can commit. Other types of perversion, such as transvestism, is forbidden in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. And then the prohibition of prostitution shows up as a great evil in dozens of biblical texts. Adultery might also include gluttony or any sin that becomes a passion for people to the point of sensual desire. And so the result is simply this, that adultery is just an egregious sin. And that's what we made the first point of our outline last week. And that was the egregious sin of adultery. And I gave you some descriptive words for it. It is dishonesty, it's devastating, it's debasing, it's degrading and damning. It's one of the worst sins that can be committed. And because it's so common today... Some have forgotten or never even learned what the word adultery means. They don't even have a sense of this sin. But God hasn't forgotten it. God never forgets sin. He's not going to forget. And all adulterers will be judged. And then I must emphasize this again. That God hates adultery because it is against His covenant. Sexual Morality and marriage is emblematic of God's faithfulness to His people. Fidelity is God's character. And if we're going to be like God, then we also have to be faithful people. And most importantly for you and me that are living in the church age today, that adultery attacks the institution of the church. The church is modeled after Christ, who is the faithful husband, who is espoused to a chaste virgin that is his bride, and, that, and the church is his bride, and she's to be pure and unspotted from the world. Adultery ruins that beautiful picture. 
Well, I want to continue our study today with this second observation, and that is the evil of adultery. Now, that might seem redundant for me to say evil when I've already used words like devastating, debasing, and, and degrading to describe it. But I'd like for us to look at this a little closer. What is it about this sin that causes so much attention in the Scripture? Well, certainly the symbol of God's character ratchets up the evil of this. But I think that there are two other words that we can use to speak of the evil of adultery. The first word would be perversion. That adultery is the perversion of sex. It's not the way that God intended for his people to enjoy the gift of sex. Now, there are some that are purely prudish about sex. They only look at it as a necessary evil. Uh, they believe that the act is bad for any purpose beyond procreation. And so they want to seal it up and never speak of this except on those terms. But it's clear from the scriptures that, that God doesn't limit sex to procreation. Solomon in the Canticles and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 would dispute that limitation to procreation. But always we understand this, that sex is free to be practiced only within the marriage bond. Marriage is the only appropriate place for it. So on the one hand, you have the prude that shuns it, and then on the other, you have the person who savors it. And you might not like me saying this, but anyone that perverts God's intention for sex is a pervert. Perverts pervert. That ought to be self-evident. Some say that sex is just a biological function. It's natural, it's just simple biology, and that we can do it any time that we desire. The desire is great enough. In 1928, in a time when we thought that people were more innocent, uh, Cole Porter wrote a song that gave us a code word for sex. He wrote the song, Let's do it, let's fall in love. And love was his euphemism for sex. And that stuck with us for years. His song said, Birds do it, bees do it. The original version had some other lines that were included that say moths do it and guinea pigs do it. So the idea is, well, this is just natural. This is all biology. Now, the Greeks and the Romans thought the same. The famous line, eat, drink, and be merry, is synonymous with today's, if it feels good, do it. And so sex is, uh, we think, is necessary as food. And nobody complains that you eat, and so why should people complain about biological sex? It's just an appetite. It's an appetite that needs to be satiated. Take care of it now because you don't know how much longer you'll have to enjoy it. Perversion leads to the pandering of sex. And so you see how frequent it is in advertisements, on billboards, TV, and radio. Many of the products that are sold have no connection at all to amorous adventure, and yet they're still sold with sexual innuendo. And so your toothpaste has to have sex appeal. Your shaving cream says, take it off, take it off, take it all off. Your blue jeans say, what comes between me and my Calvin Kleins? Nothing. If you watch Super Bowl ads, how many of those products are sold with sex? Last year, Carl's Jr. had a, had a hamburger uh, chain, the hamburger chain that you know, makes hamburgers, they, they had an ad that was so risque that it had to be censored. And so you ask, what possible connection does hamburgers have with sex? Only one. 
Sex sells hamburgers. So we live with that every day. Sex sets the trap. Satan sets the trap. It's nearly unavoidable. We see it everywhere in the most innocuous places. You don't know when it's going to pop up. You don't know when Satan's going to spring the next trap. And so he still uses Moabites at Baal Peor to bring Christians down. And then even in the church, the church has become a place of enticement. That people are so obsessed with their bodies and how they can appear to be sexy that you need to come to church with blinders on. Now, we hardly think that that would have been a problem for the old Puritans. Did they have to deal with the problem of risque clothing? Thomas Watson, a Puritan, quoted Jerome, who lived more than a thousand years before him, and he said, They who by their lascivious attire endeavor to draw others to lust, though no evil follows, are tempters and shall be punished, because they offered the poison to others, though they would not drink. Watson wouldn't have said that if he didn't have to teach it. Now understand this quote. It pictures a woman who lays a snare in a trap in the minds of men, and perhaps there isn't anybody caught in that trap, but still she's guilty of poisoning the well. The sin is still there. Similarly, uh, Arthur Pink wrote concerning Jesus' comment that to look at a woman to lust after her is adultery in the mind, and he said that the blame is not only in the one who thinks evil, but also in the one who stirs up evil. And so he said, by clear and necessary implication, Christ here forbade the using of any other of our senses and members to stir up lust. If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with desire to be looked at and lusted after, as Jezebel, who painted her face, teared her head, and looked out a window, are not less, but perhaps more guilty." And that is a very sobering comment for, and really one that wouldn't fly with feminists today. They will never admit that provocation is the cause, often the cause of sexual assault. And so they maintain the innocence of the tempter. But God doesn't. Now the point is that sex is overly captivating. It draws attention from every quarter so that it's not a thing. Sex is the thing. It's all-consuming, and so this is why advertisers use it. One half is offering, the other half is buying, and so there's 100% participation in the sin. Could any of you honestly say that sex is not an issue on people's minds? That when you go to work, the conversations are often geared towards sex? And even though you have the laws against sexual harassment, maybe those are in place. So if it's not direct, then it's many times indirect with all the innuendo that goes on. You know it. It's everywhere. Our society panders to sex. So the first word is perversion. Perversion makes it evil. The second word is rebellion. The rebellion of immorality. All sin is rebellion... But sexual sin is highlighted among the worst of rebellion. Now, why is that true? Well, it brings us back to the larger argument I made in other sermons. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I can show this to you, that from verses 9 through 20 in the 6th chapter, the subject is sexual sin. There's a dark cloud that hangs over sexual sin, unlike anything else that Paul could talk about. Sexual 
impurity is a separating sin because it misuses the body that's been made for God's purpose. Now, I think that, that Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 6 is, is compelling. His argument against sexual immorality is a compelling one. And in the last part of verse number 13, he says, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, let me simplify that for you. You were not made for sex. The voracious, all-consuming appetite for sex makes it appear that we were created to constantly chase one another until we get what we want. And so losing virginity is the first thing that has to be accomplished. Bragging rights are about how many have been conquered and added to the list, so much so that sin and sex happens at a much younger and younger age. There are statistics that say that 22% of students today are sexting, which is seven times more likely to make them have or lead them into personal sexual encounters as preteens or teenagers. So sex is the quest of life. That's not new. Paul dealt it with it 2,000 years ago. And so the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that your body was not made for fornication, but for the Lord. Now look at verse number 14. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Or as God raised Christ, he intends to preserve the body that belongs to him and he will raise it at the last day. Now watch Paul's reasoning in verse number 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. You are a part of Christ. This is what Paul is saying. Your body belongs to him. And so how are you going to take the body uh, and, and that's holy, that's been made holy, and prostitute that? And that thought is absurd. This is an unthinkable thing in Paul's mind. Now in verse 16, he brings marriage into the equation. The Bible teaches that the sexual union of marriage, in that union, two bodies become one flesh. Now note the comparison. He says, what? Know ye not that which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. And so if you give your body to another in an illicit relationship, then that's like putting Christ into the middle of that relationship. You're joined to one, that is, to Christ. Verse number 20 says that you're, you, you're not your own. Now you look at verse number 18, this tells us why sexual sin stands above all others. He says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Other sins that you commit are outside of the body. If you kill somebody, that's outside of your body. Murder happens to somebody else. If you steal, that's outside of your body. If you lie, that's outside of your body. If you dishonor your parents, that is outside of your body. But this is a sin that's different. Others may be affected by it, but this is a sin that defiles you. This is a sin that violates you. And disease and death often come by it. Now, sexual sin is a mockery of that physical and spiritual union. The Reformation Study Bible notes, in Paul's teaching, the physical union in sexual immorality has special consequences because it interferes with our Christian identity as people who have been united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Sexual immorality is rebellion. Now we've seen that in past messages, 
how closely that it's linked with idolatry. Israel committed spiritual adultery by worshiping false gods. God called that rebellion. Jeremiah said, This people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. So physical, sexual immorality is the same. The physical is emblematic of the spiritual. Rebellion in one is also rebellion in the other. Now thirdly, I want us to consider what are we to do about this? With the prevalence of this sin, it is so common. It's everywhere that we go. What are we going to do about it? So thirdly, we look at the escape from adultery. On every side, we're bombarded with temptations of sexual immorality. Like Israel, when they went into Canaan, they were confronted with it everywhere. And we've not escaped this sin if we've not physically been guilty of it, because Jesus said that impure thoughts, that lusting after a woman or a man, as the case may be, is adultery. And so if you look, and you linger in the look, and you troll for it, then you've committed adultery. So what are we to do? It's everywhere around us. How, how are we going to avoid it? How can we escape this sin, both physically and spiritually? Well, the first thing I think we would have to do is consider our studies. What are, what are we talking about? Uh, what are we studying right now? Well, we're studying God's law. It's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have a divine purpose. What is the purpose of the law of God? Well, we find it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where it says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So who is the law for? It's for you. It's for sinners. It's for rebellious people. Look at verse 10. For whoremongers. For them that defile themselves with mankind. For who? For adulterers. For homosexuals. For transvestites. For prostitutes. And then you can add into that those who feed themselves with pornography in secret. Is it possible to stop these sins? Can those that are guilty of sexual sins change? Yes, it is possible. According to 1 Corinthians 6, it is possible. Verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, what Paul says to them, You were that way, but you're not that way any longer. Now you think about that for a moment. The homosexual who says, I can't change, is wrong. They can. They don't have an excuse because God says that they can. He said, you were that way. You were involved in all different types of perversion, but you aren't that way anymore. Why? Because you have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You are clean and you're saved. And this is what the law was given to do. It was given to bring sin to light. It was given to irritate our conscience. And this is why when we preach about things like this, some people get seriously irritated. They don't want people talking about their sins. It's like a burr under the saddle. It hurts. They don't want it. But that's what the law is for. It's to expose sin that's hiding in the darkness. 
And the gospel is the light that brings the sin out of the darkness. By the law is the knowledge of sin, and by the grace of Jesus Christ comes salvation. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So where do we start to fix the problem? Well, what I want to tell you next is only for Christians. Christians fall into Satan's traps. You may be in a wrong relationship. Maybe you've been filling your mind with all the wrong stuff, and so there's adultery in your mind. Only Christians can apply the fix that I want to discuss with you now. If you don't know Christ, what I'll tell you now is not going to help you. You have to come to Him first. You have to admit that you're a helpless sinner, and you must plead for His mercy and grace to save you. Self-reformation won't help. You can't come to Christ. You can't do these things without Him. It just won't work. Now, as He said, as Jesus said, your self-reformation doesn't work because you may give up something. You, you may work on a problem and think that you have it conquered, but then when you've given it up, you go and find seven other sins that are more deadly than that one to take up the space that you've just gotten, uh, that's just been occupied by the thing that you've given up. So I'd like to address Christians today, those that have fallen into the traps of Baal Peor. What can you do? Well, let me give you two comprehensive statements that include both negative and positive ways that you can deal with this problem. The first is to eliminate temptation. Now, you can't stop Satan's ability to tempt, but you can avoid everything in your life that helps him to accomplish his task. And it starts with the way that sin enters into the mind. Now, primarily, those would be the things that you see and hear. Now, following up what Jesus said about adultery in the heart, he said, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. How do you stop, or how do you avoid seeing and doing the wrong things? Well, the advice here, it looks to be, scratch out your eyes. Cut off your hands. If you can't see it, you can't do it. How can you sin? Well, that's radical advice, isn't it? Well, don't panic about it. Because he's not speaking of self-mutilation, even though there are some who have taken that interpretation, a literal interpretation. If he was speaking of the physical, and he wanted you to get rid of sin through the physical, then he'd just cut to the chase. And he would say, well, the best thing for you to do is just blow your brains out. Cut out your heart. Because that's the root of it all. That's where it all nests, and that's where it all comes from. So it's not time for us to panic. You don't have to physically kill yourself to stop sin. But what he means is there shouldn't be anything in your life that you're unwilling to get rid of. If that thing causes impure thoughts, then be willing to get rid of it at all costs. The right hand, the right eye, that stands for the things that are the best, the things that are most precious to you. And if you have to get rid of them, it's better to than to let those things drag you into sin. 
And so the point is that you must be invested enough in righteousness that you will deal with sin radically. Don't put up with sin. Be willing to get rid of it. Get rid of the thing that you like best and that you like the most if it leads you into sin. Now understand, nobody gets rid of something that's this important, something that occupies them, without putting something else in its place. Something must occupy the vacant space that sin leaves when it's gone. And either that's going to be another sin, or it will be something that is sanctified. So let's look. What do you take out? What do you put back in? Now first consider the things that you see. John said, watch out for the lust of the eyes. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Psalm 101, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. So you have to be careful about what you see. We're stimulated by the visual. There are things that we see today that people in the past could only imagine, whereas we put it in front of us in living color. Some of it's impossible to avoid. And just seeing it, just glancing at it, if you're not doing it on purpose, that's not a, yet a sin. As one person said, a bird can land on your head, but you don't have to, have to let him build a nest in your hair. And so in a visual society, there are lots of things that we can look at. There, there, uh, there are a lot of things that could be used for good that are used for evil. TV could be wholesome, but most often it's not. Movies could be morally enjoyable, but most of the time they're moral sewers. Every day I sit in front of a computer for hours studying and researching, reading and writing. I have a library of about 3,000 books, but almost every resource that I use on a regular basis is in, is in electronic form. And so I'm able to do it on the computer. I hardly ever have to carry a, a book home from the office to, to work there. I study from home, but I don't, I, I'm not surrounded by 3,000 books because I have it all on the computer. So the computer is a very valuable aid. It's a great thing, but as you know, using a computer, you're only one click away from some of the most mind-boggling, enticing, nasty stuff that you can imagine. The World Wide Web is a worldwide sewer. It's a nasty rat hole. Jason and Brian back there have been doing some experiments with video recordings of our sermons. We'd like to make those available on our website to enhance our ministry presence on the Internet. So you can watch and listen, and you can see my face 24 hours a day if you want to. But the only restraint that we have doing it now is just the, the money for the equipment. So I had a conversation here with Brian Petro about how, how can we get those sermons online. And I was concerned about what I'd seen with some churches who put their sermons online, that they post their videos on YouTube, and you can watch. But then when you watch, on the side of that window... There are links to all sorts of stuff that you shouldn't see. Now, if you're familiar with YouTube, you know that I'm talking about. So I, I told him, well, we've got to figure out some way that we can avoid that because I know that there are people that have problems with that temptation. If they see the link, they're going to click. And we don't want people to be tempted with that. And so he told me, well, yes, there, there's a way that we can avoid that. We don't have to have that on ours. So the Internet's great. It's a very useful thing. It reduces my time of research immensely. 
But there's also a multi-billion dollar porn industry that's connected with it. And almost everything you do, every place that you go, you're going to find that that stuff infiltrates. And you, as I said a moment ago, you're just one click away from it. And so when you see the links, stop. Don't go any further. Because it's a long way down to the bottom of that hole. So if you have that problem, it's better to cut out your right eye. And by that, I mean it's better for you to get rid of that time-saving, excellent device rather than to give in to the pollution of your mind. And so if that computer, if that smartphone, if that tablet cost $1,000, it's better to get rid of it if that's what it takes. And I know it's hard for young people today to imagine there could be a world where you didn't actually have to have those things but we lived for centuries without them, didn't we? And then there's the print media. The first book that was ever printed on a movable type printing press was the Bible. But that good didn't last very long. As far back as the 16th and 17th centuries, there were books already being published of pure interest. They had pornography back in those times in the print media. Now the type of porn... Uh, that type continued until the end of the 20th century, and then it became too costly to print because people could have it any time that they wanted. Just as I said, clicking on their smartphone, they could get it. But there are still some that prefer that, that medium, and so some prefer to read it printed in a book. And so that's why you find pornographic books will often top the New York Times bestseller list. The eyes are open to every kind of evil. Let me pick out some more for you. Here's one that you don't hear very much about anymore. What happened to preaching against dancing? We used to preach against that all of the time. Um, we used to preach that a Christian family had no business doing that, that we wouldn't let our kids go to the prom. What, what is today's dancing? Simulated sex. The eyes go straight to it. Who's going to defend that as being right? Who can defend that for a Christian? No wonder they pass out condoms at school. And then there's temptation through the ears. Most of the music today is 99% garbage. Pick out any genre that you want. Pick out any of the popular artists, or rather I'd say don't, don't look at them. Uh, pardon my French, but uh, I puke at Beyonce and Miley Cyrus. Uh, and I don't know the names of a lot of them because I don't, I don't watch any of that. I don't watch and listen to it because I don't feel like puking. They're nasty, filthy, disgusting people. And then for the rest of you, uh, throw in country music too. I mean, anybody that can come up with a redeeming quality for country music, let me know because I'd like to have an opportunity to puke on you. Does that sound very much like a preacher? Well, remember what Jesus said in Revelation to the Laodicean Christians. You know what he said? I will vomit you out of my mouth. So if you get rid of it all, what are you going to put in its place? Well, the Bible would be a good start. You expected I would say that, didn't you? Uh, what would happen to us if people read the Bible as much as they watched TV and played on smartphones? I think if they did... Uh, I'd find myself with a lot of competition because there'd be people who say, let me get in the pulpit and I'll tell you how glorious that Jesus Christ is. So here's the thing. 
If you don't see sin, and you don't hear sin, and you don't think about sin, then probably you won't sin. So occupy your mind with good, so there's no room for the bad. A mind that's filled with all of that garbage will always find Satan's trap and you'll fall into it. But you can spring Satan's trap before it ever catches you. This is how you do it. Psalm 119. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. This is hard, isn't it? Is the Bible boring to you? Is, is that not enough entertainment for you? Well, okay, I'm, I'm just telling you how you can solve the problem. If you read the Bible and you pray, then you'll start to develop the same love of Scripture that the psalmist had. Paul says in Philippians 4, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, those things which we have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Here's another suggestion for you. Stay busy. When I sit down, I need something in my hands. I mean, I, I just can't sit and stare at the walls of the blank mind, so I have to pick up my iPad, or I pick up my phone, or I flip the channels on the TV. Idleness causes the mind to wonder. Now, unless you read the Living Bible, which is a made-up version, idle hands are the devil's workshop is not in the Bible. But the principle is there. A lazy mind wonders and it gets lost. There's no good that comes from it. So get busy and stay busy. When you rest, have a plan for your rest. Make that plan wholesome. And then you won't have time to do the bad stuff. So if you really want to escape sexual immorality, then just eliminate the areas of temptation. Spring Satan's trap before you step in it. Then finally, the second way that you can escape it is to eliminate companions. And I mean to eliminate bad companions. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Communications is the same word as companionship. The source of that saying is kind of an interesting one because it didn't originate with Paul. It's a quotation from the Greek uh, dramatist Menander who lived about 300 years before Paul. Was the saying wrong because it didn't originate with Paul? No, it just tells us that non-Christians have this much sense. A parent may not be a Christian, but he knows enough that he doesn't want his kids hanging around with the wrong crowd. Parents don't want their children to marry from the wrong side of the tracks. Now, that's a generalization, but we understand what we mean by that, that corruption breeds corruption. Now, I've said before that every parent thinks that it's the other kids that corrupt their kids. Some parent has to be wrong about that. Your kid may be the corrupting influence. And um, I've seen some of your kids, and I, I... want to stay away from them, keep them at arm's length at least. Now, a, great, a great help for preventing trouble is to watch out who you hang out with. Young men and young ladies, 
Don't date boys or girls that aren't Christians. If you don't date them, you don't marry them. An unbeliever can't stop the evil that's in his heart. And so the odds are greatly stacked against you that you are going to bring an unbeliever to Christ. The unbeliever is more likely to be a snare to you than you are to be salvation for them. So here's the bottom line of it. God provides a way that you can escape sexual immorality. You've got to use the escape hatch. Or you'll find yourself mired in sin. And if you find this out, that repetition of the same sins are your problem, maybe it's because you never close and lock the gate by which those temptations enter. If it's your stuff, get rid of your stuff. Don't keep anything dearer to you than Jesus Christ. TVs, computers, smartphones, companions, none of them are more valuable than holiness. And so if they keep leading you down the wrong path, get rid of them. Pluck out your right eye. Cut off your right hand if you must. Now let me give you two more verses. First is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart shall see God. James 1.27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Pure religion from a pure heart will lead you into good works for Jesus Christ. Pure religion will keep you unspotted from the world. And the one who lives a pure life is the one who has plugged up all of those holes where that slithering serpent Satan can enter in. Now sexual immorality can be escaped, but because Satan uses every opportunity that he can to tempt you, it's not going to be escaped without strong determination. Avoid all of these temptations. Now, I have one more subject to tackle on the Seventh Commandment. It's also a timely one. Next week, we're going to return uh, to marriage and consider what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. He said that divorce is connected to adultery. These are two things that are locked together. So next time, we're going to talk about that. And if you, if you are a divorced person, what are you going to do with this commandment? Well, thank God for this, that... There's an answer for that in Jesus Christ as well. And we thank Him that He delivers us from all sins and all temptations that we could ever get into. It's all dependent upon how we trust in Him as Savior and Deliverer from all the sins that we can commit. So let's remember what we've learned here today. Avoid the temptations. Avoid the people that cause you to go into temptations. Spring Satan's trap before it catches you, because inevitably it will if you're not always on your guard. This is how Christians are to live, in holiness before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God that is encouraging to us. We see ourselves as sinners, unable to avoid sin because that's human nature. There's no way that we can help ourselves. We can't pick ourselves up. We can't remedy the problems that we have. And so we find ourselves falling into sin over and over again. And it will happen every time unless we are totally, wholly dependent upon you. I pray, Lord, for Christians here today 
that they would use the remedies that have been suggested, not just suggested, but commanded by the Word of God. Keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And then I pray for those who don't know Christ. Uh, sin condemns people to hell. And all of us are sinners, so everyone without Christ is going to hell. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up someone's heart to the gospel today. They can be delivered from their sin. You promised that. As the scripture we read said, such were some of you. But because they believed in Jesus Christ, because they were washed in the blood of Christ, they weren't that way any longer. And so we can tell anyone who's deeply mired in sin, they can be lifted out, they can be cleansed, they can be free of that sin in Jesus Christ. Open up someone's heart to that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.